This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 10th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. The shooting death of Trayvon Martin has, appropriately or not, rekindled some arguments over the range of acceptable behavior when we defend ourselves. Following an April event on Stand Your Ground laws, the Cato Institute's Tim Lynch sat down with Masad Ayub, firearms trainer and author of In the Gravest Extreme. You've written that most articles and books on self-protection say that guns should not be kept for self-defense because you're more likely to have a family member killed by accident than you are to shoot a criminal. And besides, an intruder can take it away from you and kill you with it. You say these arguments are mostly propaganda. Why do you say that? First, it's very rare to actually find a case where the bad guy took the gun away from the armed citizen and uh, used it against them. There are at least as many, if not more, cases where the armed citizen has disarmed the criminal and either put them to flight, captured them, or shot and neutralized them. The argument of you are 42 times more likely to, uh, uh, to lose a member of the family to gunfire because you have a gun in the home has been debunked by far better statisticians and sociologists than I. But I think you'll find in any statistics class, that's now one of the classic examples of how to lie with statistics. The law on the use of deadly force can get tricky because we have 50 states with their own codes plus federal law. But you have nevertheless developed a formula for your students as to the circumstances that justify the use of deadly force. Can you explain that? I tell my students that we're a mobile society. We cross state lines all the time. And as you said, we are a 50-piece patchwork quilt of laws. So they're not going to have time to pull out their iPhone, go to findlaw.com, and determine in this current jurisdiction, what shall I do while my head is being beaten in with a rock? So we tell them to go with a universal standard, the the core basics that are found in all 50 states and, frankly, in most countries. Essentially, deadly force is, that is, that degree of force likely to kill or cripple, is only authorized in a situation of immediate, otherwise unavoidable danger of death or great bodily harm to innocent persons. Uh, including oneself. For that situation to kick in, we need three simultaneously present criteria. The criteria criteria will be subject to different terminology in you know, this academy or that school. But the most common terminology for them, still used last I knew by Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, is ability, opportunity, and jeopardy. By ability, we mean the opponent has the power to kill or to cripple, uh, a per se weapon like a gun or a knife, or some element of disparity of force. By disparity of force, the law is saying that even though the, the opponent or opponents appear to be unarmed, within the totality of the circumstances, their violent, unarmed attack on you is so likely to have fatal or crippling results that you're authorized to use a deadly weapon in self-defense. Some elements of that in a physical beating situation would be multiple opponents, the force of numbers, a huge difference in size or strength that favors the criminal aggressor, known or obviously inferable high skill in unarmed combat. Uh, The man has told you he's a Navy SEAL who's killed enemy sentries with his bare hands. He is known to you as a professional mixed martial arts fighter. He's known to you as a black belt. 
Or something as simple as you've just seen him kick a six foot two policeman through a plate glass window, and you can reasonably infer this is a man who knows how to hurt people with just his hands and feet. So that ability factor has to be there. Another element of the disparity of force would be able-bodied attacking the handicapped, even if the the handicap has been inflicted during the course of the instant assault, or someone who has you in a position of disadvantage. Uh, let's say the carjacker has broken through the, the driver's window. You are seat-belted into a bucket seat, and as he punches you in the face, you can't roll with the blow, you can't slip the punch, you can't duck and evade the blow, and you can't get enough body weight into a counterpunch to stop the attack. In that situation, the courts have held reaching for the gun and, if necessary, using it if he doesn't stop is justified. So that would be the ability factor. Second would be the opportunity factor. Uh, that means he has to be capable of immediately employing the power. If he says, I'm going to go get a gun and tomorrow I'm going to come back and kill you, it's certainly something to be concerned about, but it's not justification to whip out your gun now and shoot him. If he yells, you SOB, I'll blow your brains out, and you know he carries a gun in a shoulder holster and he reaches to his armpit, now the, ability, the opportunity element has been fulfilled. The third element is jeopardy. Jeopardy means that he's acting in a manner that a reasonable, prudent person would construe as indicating his intent is to kill or cripple you or that person you have a right to protect. It might be just words, it might be just actions, it might be a combination of the two. When all three of those are present, the situation is justified. It's always judged within what the courts call the totality of the circumstances, that is all the subtle little details that might or might not have determined who was culpable and who was innocent. It is always measured against what you might call the yardstick of the reasonable man doctrine. Uh, it's an ancient common law principle, and as expressed to the jury by the judge, the instruction would be, you must ask yourselves, what would a reasonable and prudent person have done in the exact same situation, knowing what the defendant knew? And anyone ever sitting in jury duty or anyone who ever might be a defendant has to realize that's a three-pronged test. It's not just what would a reasonable and prudent man do, a, a reasonable, that by reasonable they're saying a logical person, uh, by prudent they're saying a, a cautious individual. The second prong of the test is in the exact same situation, not some fantasy that the, the attorney of the guy you wounded has spun out of whole cloth, but what the facts and evidence, including testimony of, of impartial witnesses, show to have pretty certainly been the case. Finally, knowing what you knew. There are a whole lot of folks out there who don't recognize danger signals on the street. If you've had to shoot a man who started an incident with you and it degenerated to where he's banging your head against a light pole and you're seeing stars and you realize you're about to become unconscious, helpless, and possibly very soon dead or a vegetable... When, when people say, you know, when people ask you who threw the first punch, most witnesses don't even realize something's going on until they hear the smack of the fist in the face and turn around and look, and now they see somebody hitting somebody, but they can't really tell who hit who first. 
you want to be able to articulate that you are able to recognize a man telegraphing a punch. You are able. You want to be able to articulate that you can recognize a, the difference between a guy going for a gun and a guy about to pull some lint out of his belly button. So it's what would a reasonable and prudent person have done in that same exact situation, knowing what you, the defendant, knew. Another common myth among gun owners is that if you ever in this situation where you had to shoot a criminal, it would be better to leave the scene if there are no witnesses. Just keep your mouth shut, get out of there, so as to avoid the hassle of a police investigation and possible lawsuits. Why do you say that that's a myth? It's not only a myth, it's a formula for turning a justifiable act into something that will send you to prison. It keys in an element that's called flight equals guilt. The, the assumption at law is that the righteous person who's done the right thing will stand their ground to explain themselves to the authorities, and he who flees does so out of consciousness of guilt. Now, it's not an automatic rule in which uh, you know the prosecutor proves you fled, therefore the judge says, ah, automatically guilty. No such thing occurs in our jurisprudence. Probably every judge will allow that argument to be made by the prosecutor, and it's a very, very difficult thing to, to climb uphill from. Uh, the, the prisons are full of people who've looked both ways for witnesses, didn't see any until they appeared to testify against them at trial. Stand your ground laws are all over the news these days. A lot of people are saying that they amount to a license to kill. What is your view of the stand your ground law? More myth. Uh, it's not only not a license to kill, it's not even a learner's permit. Basically, what you have here is simply that, as the English common law has always said, one's home is a castle, that is their castle, and attack there they need not retreat. And our law, of course, derives largely from that English common law. This is simply an extension of that principle that says, you know what, when you're any place, you have a right to be and are unlawfully attacked. You may respond with an appropriate level of force to protect yourself without attempting to retreat. Uh, none of it says if somebody raises a hand to punch you in the nose, you can shoot him. None of it says if, if someone frightens you, you can whip out your gun and shoot them. That's strictly propaganda from the, the groups that want to strip American firearms owners of their civil rights and, frankly, their, their human rights. Uh, it was, uh, I believe, the great Lord Blackstone who said that self-defense is the highest of all human rights. Why do police agencies lobby against these laws? Police agencies don't. Certain chiefs of police do. And what, you, what people have to understand is in most law enforcement agencies, civil service protection stops at the rank of captain. Higher than that, you serve at the pleasure of the appointing authority. If you are the chief of police making the best money you've ever made, wielding more influence than you've ever wielded, building up a nice pension, and the mayor who appointed you and can fire you tomorrow says, hey, I've joined mayors against illegal guns, and I need you to tell the world that a semi-automatic gun is an assault rifle, uh, that if a gun is in their house, it will come alive and slaughter their children, and, oh my God, if you try to protect yourself, you'll be horribly maimed and mangled by the criminals. The chief in that situation has a choice. Uh, he can put his testicles in a blind trust and become a puppet for the mayor, or 
he can start looking for a new job. So I would say when people say uh, police departments are against these things, I would take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I've been working with cops for over 40 years now. And I can tell you when they when the intended victim turns the tables on the violent criminal who tried to prey on them, no one cheers louder than the real street cops. They just obviously can't do it in public. As we sit here today, the Trayvon Martin shooting seems like the most controversial shooting since the Bernard Getz case in New York City in 1984. As we sit here today, George Zimmerman has been indicted, but the trial has not started. Have you formed any opinions on this case, or is it too early for that? I think it's too early. Uh, When I was contacted by his first attorney, Craig Sonner, I accepted the case conditionally as an expert witness, meaning that I, I don't take a case until I've reviewed all the discovery material, that is, all the facts and evidence and determined that the guy's on the side of the angels. Craig Sonner left, uh, I forget the exact date, uh, just a couple of days before the indictment. Only once he was charged would legal counsel for Zimmerman have access to that. So I was off it at that point and have not seen, for example, the autopsy report, Uh, the transcripts or tapes of Mr. Zimmerman's uh, interviews with the police that night and some other critical evidence. Until we see that, all of us in the 300 million plus of us who are the jury of public opinion, like any jury, it's simply not right for us to come to a verdict until we've seen all the evidence. How do you respond to those who say that if Martin had shot Zimmerman, he certainly would have been arrested the night of the shooting, that African-Americans are too often treated differently by the system? Sometimes they are. Uh, we have in this country a history of racial prejudice against blacks that you know, literally goes back for centuries. You and I are old enough to remember the Bull Connor days in the early 1960s and how some police abused their power and just absolutely brutalized not only African-Americans who lived in their communities, but those who came there to fight for their civil rights. Today, it's, it has evolved. Uh, we're seeing it now going very much in both directions. In the uh, Martin Zimmerman shooting, Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman, we saw one organization that literally committed the very serious crime of solicitation to commit murder and kidnapping by putting out a $10,000 bounty on Zimmerman's head. So the, the bigotry goes in both directions. And hopefully justice truly is blind. There's a reason Lady Justice wears that blindfold when she's holding the, the scales. Uh, the question you asked was, uh, would Martin have been justified to understand your ground? No, uh, it was whether Martin would have been arrested that night if he had shot Zimmerman. In the exact same situation, probably not. I have no reason to believe that Sanford PD would have looked at him any differently, except for being a 17-year-old with a gun, which <laughs> would be illegal walking around concealed in the state of Florida. But I have no reason to believe that uh, that would have happened. Essentially, all these things have to be looked at. Not that we look at the party that we most relate to and say, okay, because I relate to him, you know, I'm a concealed carry guy, so I relate to Zimmerman. 
well, by God, I'm, I've been a black 17-year-old hassled by white folks, and I'll relate with, uh, with Trayvon Martin. What all of us have to do, if we're going to be honest, representatives of our respective communities and our respective subcultures, is wait, look at it, <clears throat> take the color out of it, analyze what does the evidence actually show is most likely to have happened here, and proceed accordingly. Masad Ayub is a firearms trainer and author of In the Gravest Extreme. He spoke with Cato's Tim Lynch following an April forum on Stand Your Ground laws. You can watch that full event at Cato.org.